Love, you can begin making your way back to your seats, and uh, as you do, grab your Bibles, and I'm going to ask you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You may be wondering, what in the world does 1 Corinthians chapter 15 have to do with the Christmas story? What in the world does it have to do with a manger? What in the world does it have to do with this time of year? And to that I would just simply say this chapter has everything to do with the gospel and the hope we have that there is victory in Jesus and that's why Jesus came. And so 1 Corinthians 15 has everything to do with the manger and the inn and the census and the birth of Jesus, but it does so from looking at the victory of Jesus. And in the beginning verses of this chapter, chapter 15 of this letter, the Apostle Paul wrote, he began to address the claim or the thoughts or the wonderings of some that there wasn't this resurrection from the dead to be hoped for. That once somebody died, or in the language he used, once somebody fell asleep, that was it. And that's all they had, and they might have had their 80 years, or they might have had less, or maybe a little more, but whatever it was they had, they had, and that was all there was to have. And Paul takes issue with that idea and that conclusion and just says to them, look, if, if that's true, then Jesus himself hasn't even risen from the grave. And he then begins to outline several significant implications that would flow out of that conclusion. And in verses 12 to 19, he lists seven of them. He comes back in verse 29 to 32 and gives us three more. We looked at all ten of those implications last week. But sandwiched in between those two passages where he explores what would be the implications if Jesus was still in the grave. He almost hits the pause button and for a moment, nine verses, says, but in fact Jesus has risen from the grave. In fact, the tomb is still empty. And the manger doesn't matter if the tomb is still occupied. The manger doesn't matter. Quite frankly, the cross doesn't matter if Jesus is still in the grave. And it was rising from the grave that he became and declared by the will of God the Father, through the power of God the Spirit, victory over the grave. And just think about that for a moment. Like I, I mean, it's easy to say, and I, and I think it's an entirely different thing to try to get our minds wrapped around. In part because we're, we're limited in our ability to understand and, and unpack and comprehend everything that has been promised to us through Jesus Christ and the, the full scope of his victory over all things. But if we just allow ourselves for a moment to just, just kind of ponder and consider the fact that the most consistent experience that humanity has had is death. We all know someone who has died. We all have relatives 
who have died. Some of them may have just died after a long life and it would have been what we'd say natural causes and we grieve those deaths but those deaths are almost expected because that's just what happens as people get older but then there's the deaths that are unexpected and there's the deaths that are in perhaps our language unnatural because they happened too soon the deaths that maybe take place in the womb or just shortly after. The, the deaths of, of parents and relatives and family members that you, you find them just instantly not with you any longer. And death is this most, it is the most common experience that humanity has and shares. And this hope we have in Christ that he declared to be true by rising from the grave is that there's victory over death. That one day there's no longer any death. That it no longer is the most shared and common experience for every person who has ever lived. And so the Apostle Paul writes about this victory. And we'll see in these nine verses this morning, and we're not going to spend a ton of time digging deep into them. We're going to see in these verses that the victory over death is assured. The victory over death is coming. And the victory over death is absolute. You might say instead of absolute, you might say all-encompassing, you might say complete, whatever, whatever word fits best there for you to mean absolutely everything. The victory over Jesus, over death, is absolute. And Paul begins to walk through this, and this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is rightly considered to be one that speaks about the end times. It's a passage that deals with what's going to happen in the future. And so here's just two, or here's a caution or a, a statement and then two kind of implications out of that as we just think about these end times things together. Paul doesn't write about all the details. And I would submit to you there's not one passage in the scripture that gives us a full complete set of details regarding the end times. And what's going to happen, in what order it's going to happen. And so, if we're not careful, we can come to a passage like this in 1 Corinthians 15, and we can look for and expect and maybe be frustrated to not find a full, complete list of the timeline. And I just want to caution us to not do that. The other caution that I would have for you is to miss the point of what Paul has to say because he doesn't give a full timeline. And in my opinion, too often when we think about end times things, we're, we're more looking for the timeline. We want to know when's, when's the rapture going to happen and when's that treaty getting signed and how long after that does the millennial kingdom come in and what, what's going to... And we get ourselves kind of caught in a timeline and our fellowship as a, just a denomination has some pretty strong thoughts about those things. I just want to caution us to not miss the point of what Paul has to say because he doesn't give us a full, complete timeline. 
what he says is true. It just may not give us all the details that other passages and places give us. And I would tell you it's similar to how we just actually use language in our own daily lives. So if you came here this morning and you plan to go out to eat after the service is done, you might have said to the members in your family, we're going to go to church and then we're going to go out to eat. And that statement is true. But you did not say, we're going to turn left on this road and drive till that stoplight. And then we're going to turn right, and then we're, going to, then we're going to use our right turn signal to make another right, and we're going to end up parking in that parking spot, and then you're going to unbuckle your seatbelt, and then you're going to open your doors, and then we're going to walk to the... There, there's a way of providing all of the details, which do matter, and are true, but there's a way of just providing some summary statements as well, which are no less true, even though they may not be as detailed. And that's what Paul does here. If what our fellowship believes, what I would submit to you as as a pretty good, accurate understanding of end times things is true, Paul does in just about one sentence cast a giant arc over 3,000 years of church history. And he does it in one passing shot. What he does is say, We're going to go to church and then we're going to go out to eat. And his emphasis is going out to eat. His emphasis is on the victory of Jesus over death. That victory is assured. It is coming and it is absolute. Go with me to verse 20. Let's see this first big idea. But in fact... Christ has been raised. There's the contrast from wondering whether or not Christ has been raised. Wondering whether or not that tomb is still occupied. And Paul says, in fact, as a matter of fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection from death the dead for as in adam all die so as also in christ all will be made alive paul begins by saying that this victory over death is assured and it is assured because jesus has risen from the grave and in doing so and in doing so he is what paul calls the first fruits Now that's Old Testament language, and Leviticus 23 gives us the the feast of first fruits. And here was that feast in a really big summary fashion. You would bring the first of your harvest, of your crop or your, your livestock, as an offering to the tabernacle or the temple. And the Levites and the priests would do with it what they were told to do with it, and that was to do two things. It was to bring God the first, the cut off the top, It was to set it aside as holy. It was to render it divine in the sense that it was going to be used in the tabernacle and the temple for the Lord's purposes only. And the second thing the first fruits was to do was to also signal there's more coming. There's still harvest in the field yet to be reaped. And it's in that second sense that Paul uses this term first fruits. Jesus rose from the grave and there's more coming. 
And his victory over death, or our victory over death, or the victory over death is assured because Christ has risen from the grave. And then Paul takes Adam and Jesus and he puts them side by side and he says, just think about it this way. Adam was a representative of humanity. And when Adam ate the fruit that he wasn't to eat, the world and the universe and every human being that would ever follow him fell into sin. And that sin has affected more things than we, quite frankly, can get our minds wrapped around and understood. But then Jesus came. The Bible calls him the second Adam. He came as a representative. And the way that Adam was a representative of all humanity, Jesus is a representative of those who trust in him for salvation by faith. And as in Adam, all will die. Because we just do what our father Adam did. And we were born with a sinful nature, but then we have confirmed that time and time again through our actions and our attitudes and our thoughts. And as in Adam, all die, but as in Christ, all will be made alive. Those who are in Christ, all of those who are in Christ will be made alive. As in Adam, all die. That word all shows up in two different ways there, and I've tried to unpack for you. The word all is is a word that's contextually defined. It does mean all. Its meaning is not hard to understand, but how that meaning gets applied depends on the context. So here would be an example. If you went to my house and said, did you drink all the coffee? You more than likely mean, is the coffee pot empty? The word all there is just pretty simple to understand. If you went to Starbucks and said, did you drink all the coffee? It means something a little different. The meanings are certainly related. But you're talking about a very different quantity of coffee. It's not just the coffee in my coffee pot. It's the coffee that all of Starbucks has on the shelf and in the roasters and wherever else they have and keep coffee in their stores. And that's similar to how Paul is using the language here. When he says, and as an Adam all die, what he's saying is that because we were born with a sinful nature and have confirmed that with our actions and our attitudes and our thoughts, we, like our father Adam, have fallen and have come under the sentence of death. But all of those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be made alive. And in Christ, all will be made alive. The victory over death is assured because Christ is risen. You want to summarize it even more succinctly? Jesus wins. I was talking with Tobin last night, or the night before, I believe, when we were putting him to bed. And he goes, God always wins. And I was like, he does, buddy. I think he's learning that downstairs with the teachers. Thank you for those of you that teach, because it's sticking. I said, do you know Daddy's going to preach about that on Sunday? He's like, no. And I was like, yeah, you're going to be there, and you're going to maybe listen. I'm not even sure where he is right now. But Jesus always wins. The victory over death is assured because Christ is risen. The victory over death is coming because Jesus is Returning. Go to verse 23 with me. 
but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Paul here is talking about all in Christ who will be made alive. They'll be made alive in their own order. Christ who is the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. That word order is a word used to, uh, it's a military term that can be used to reference groupings of people or divisions or ranks of people. And Paul's just saying, look, there's an order to this. Jesus rose from the grave and he has indicated by the power over death and no longer being in the tomb that there is a whole host of people who will join him one day. And the victory over death is coming because Jesus is risen and returning. At his coming, and this is where we get that big arc of 3,000 years. We're not going to step into the timeline and the dating and all of those things. But this coming of Jesus where we see his full and final victory over death happens at the end of his thousand year reign That Revelation chapter 19, excuse me, 20, speaks of. There will still be death during that thousand year reign. And it will be after that, when the new heavens and the new earth come, that we will see his victory over death be complete and absolute. And that's where Paul goes next. Verses 24 to then 28, we read about the absolute victory that is coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection or submission under his feet. Now almost in parenthesis, Paul is just going to give a little clarity to say, but when it says all things are put in submission, it's plain that it's all things except the one who put all things in submission to him. That would be God the Father. Verse 28. When all things are in submission to Jesus, then the Son will also be in submission to the Father, who put all things in submission under Him, that God may be all in all. There's a lot going on in that verse. The word submission shows up a lot, and we don't have the time this morning to unpack all of that. But I want to touch on a few things briefly. First of all, let's not miss the point that Paul is making. That the victory over death is absolute. The victory over death is absolute. Then comes the end. One dictionary that I consulted this past week said that that word end means the final act in the cosmic drama. It's a fun way of thinking about that. Then comes the end. The moments right before the new heavens and the new earth. When there is no more sin or sorrow or sickness and every tear is wiped from our eyes. Then comes the end and Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying or abolishing every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign, 
That word reign is written in such a way that it speaks to his current reign and what will continue to be his reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. The very last enemy to be destroyed is death. The victory over death is absolute. And Jesus is reigning and will continue to reign until all of his enemies have been put under his feet, the very last of them being the enemy of death. And so when Paul uses the words every rule and every power and every authority, that's language that he employs to refer to those who are in opposition to the Lord. It could be be the, the angelic powers that are in opposition to him. It could be kingdoms here on earth. It could be rulers here on earth. It could even be you and I in our own little worlds. If we are in opposition to him, one day he will conquer all. And he is currently reigning and one day will conquer all and hand over this kingdom to God the Father. Because the victory over death is absolute. I think an incredibly helpful way of trying to understand who the enemies of God are, perhaps their strategies, their desires, is to just very succinctly see them as the champions of death. And Satan desires for humanity to experience eternal death and separation away from God. He desires for you and I to have the greatest level of brokenness in our human relationships as possible. And sometimes that comes just through what we might consider brokenness, an addiction, a a, a broken promise. Sometimes it comes through prosperity, where, where the goal or the desires for money, stuff, things, material objects that can often lead to a father chasing the next rung on the corporate ladder and ignoring the children left in his home. Brokenness can arrive in a whole lot of different ways and it can come through a variety of means, but these rulers, these authorities, these powers, their greatest objective is to champion death. And one day Jesus will conquer all of it. And his victory over death is absolute. So what do we do with all of the submissions and subjections and all of those words that show up repeatedly? There is one interpretation along the way. It's what the Jehovah's Witnesses would use that says, see, Jesus really isn't God. Because God's going to be over Jesus. I was talking last month. No, it was in October. It was a month and a half ago. Uh, to a couple Jehovah's Witness missionaries on the boardwalk when I was out in Ocean City for some pastor's meetings. And they referenced this passage, and they referenced this as proof to say, see, Jesus isn't God, because Jesus has a role, and he's going to do his thing, and he's going to conquer, and he's going to do all that, but then God the Father is going to be over Jesus, because Jesus was a created being. He's the first begotten son, and, and that's one particular stream of interpretive thought that is just 
largely ignoring everything else the scriptures teach. I think the way for us to understand in the limited time we have this morning how these words subjection and submission come into and relate to one another in terms of the Father and the Son and their relationship and what they're seeking to accomplish is this. The scriptures tell us that the Son and the Father are absolutely equal, as the Spirit is as well. The Father, Son, and the Spirit, absolutely equal, and yet they have distinct roles. And I think what this is saying is that Jesus' role changes come the new heavens and the new earth. And Revelation 21 gives us a little bit of what that role would be. But Jesus has a role right now, and his role is going to change when he accomplishes everything that he's supposed to accomplish now. And this idea of Jesus being in submission to the Father is actually exactly in line with the very words that Jesus himself said. Think about what he prayed in the garden when he was just hours or minutes or certainly moments away from being arrested. If there's any way this cup can pass from me, please, let's take that option. Nevertheless, not your will, or not my will, but your will be done. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's the idea of the, the father initiating and the son going. This idea of the son being submissive to the father is exactly in line with what we see throughout the New Testament and old in regards to the relationship. But it does not mean that Jesus is any less divine does not mean that he's any less God. It certainly does not mean that he's just a man who was created by God to come and accomplish some things. It means that he's equal with the Father and the Spirit and just has a different role. He has a role right now. His role is going to change later. It's very, very similar to how we've tried to just express and unpack how this word submission applies to relationships within the marriage. It's absolute equality in the value of the person. There's just distinction in the role. I think the same is true here. One scholar said this, and I I just found this really helpful, that it is impossible for Paul to think of Christ acting independently of God or of God acting independently of Christ. Or of one doing all the work while the other does nothing. To summarize that for you. And where I would just kind of find myself landing as I read Revelation in 21 and 22. God's going to continue reigning through Jesus. It'll look a little different. But the victory over death is absolute. Because Christ is risen, Christ is returning, and Christ is reigning. Summarize it again, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Because he shall reign. And he shall reign forevermore.
And Paul, in summarizing verse 12 all the way through the end of these verses, tells us to not be deceived. Tells us to wake up if we've been deceived. Tells us to sin no more. Those are the three commands he gives out of unpacking the significance of the resurrection. The significance of the empty tomb. The significance of the hope that we have that Jesus is reigning and ruling and returning and risen. If we find ourselves or if we allow ourselves to be deceived that the resurrection isn't true and it didn't happen and there's no hope for the future, then as I said last week, you really wasted your time this morning. I mean, the kids were great, but outside of that, you've wasted your time this morning. Don't come back next week. But if the grave is empty, if he's coming again, and if he's currently reigning and will reign forevermore, then what we have done this morning and what we do in living out these, this command to go make disciples and the, the, the pallets behind us of doing it through worship and serving and relationships with one another and evangelism, It's all that matters. It's the only thing that matters. The victory over death is absolute. Because Jesus has risen. He is returning. He is currently and will forevermore be reigning. He wins. Let's pray and the kids are going to come lead us in one last song. Jesus, we thank you for the hope that we have and that promise that you have given us in your word that you are coming back, that you are reigning, you are ruling and there will be one day, a day that is coming Where you will fully, completely abolish every one of your enemies, including the greatest and last enemy, the enemy of death. Jesus, we acknowledge that you did not create us to experience death. And even though that is the most common experience that we share together as human beings, it was not what we were designed for. It was not what we were created for. It is not part of the very good moment and week of creation that crescendoed. It's foreign. It's an imposter. We rightly ache and grieve and weep because of the sting of death. But we pray in the midst of that that we might also rejoice and be hopeful Because of who you are, Jesus. Because of that empty grave. Because of your current reigning and future reign and your promise to come again. Thank you that the victory over death has been 
assured, it has been promised, and it is absolute because you reign and will reign forevermore. And we pray this in your good name. Amen.